want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I want to ask you, what is it that we just did? Why is it that we did what we just did? I'm not talking about announcements. I'm talking about worship. Why did we do that? Now, for me growing up, worship was important. We generally sang a hymn at the very beginning and then halfway through and then right after the sermon. Uh, sometimes we just sang two. Usually we did three. We, we, sit, we had a hymn book, though, that was, it, it did have some of the traditional hymns, but it had a lot of hymns that the music was hard to follow, the words. I, as, a, as a young teenager, it was hard for me to understand the words. And basically, it kind of felt like, I, as a kid, I did worship just so I wasn't sitting the whole time. Why do we worship? In all honesty, uh, most people really don't understand why we worship. In all honesty, and maybe you've heard this before, skeptics will say, why is it that your God seems to be a megalomaniac, an egomaniac that just wants everybody to worship him? I mean, he asks that we not be like that, so why is he? And the world will generally create God in our image. God is just like man. But why do we worship? Now, we've been looking at five, what I call, eternal metaphors. And basically what that means is that God has, there is a spiritual reality and God creates a physical reality to reflect that spiritual reality. In other words, the spiritual has preceded the physical. If we want to understand the spiritual, then we need to understand the physical as well. And vice versa. But God gives us the physical as a picture, a metaphor, to understand this eternal reality. Now, we looked at marriage, we've looked at family, we've looked at the army of God, we've looked at this, the body of Christ, and last week in this, well, I should say two weeks ago, because we met with uh, St. Barbara last week with the joint service, so we kind of took a little break, but two weeks ago, we looked at this idea of the temple, that all of us collectively are the temple of God, rising to become a holy temple in the Lord, in which God dwells by his spirit. But individually as well, we are God's temple. So the spirit of God lives in you as a believer in Jesus Christ, but God, his spirit actually indwells us as a corporate group as the body of Christ. And we see passages that reflect this. So corporately, his spirit indwells us, we are his temple, and yet individually as well. Now what we saw as we did this is we looked at the Old Testament picture of the temple, and what we walked away with was a picture, a magnificent, prophetic, profound picture of redemption. All aspects of the temple, the altar, the labors that they would wash in, the, going inside the holy place and into then into the holy of holies where only the high priest could go once a year because that is where God actually sat, was enthroned upon the mercy seat where the true angels, I should say, to cherubim. So much more, actually, than what I got into. But what we saw was an amazing picture of God's redemptive work through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That all of history hinges 
on that time in which Christ died on the cross and rose in the power of the Spirit to be able to give us life. Sins washed away. Now we are empowered to walk in the Spirit in the newness of this life. And we discovered that the reason why the temple faced east was because throughout the, New, the Old Testament, we see that when people abandoned God, such as Cain, they were sent eastward, actually, to a place called Nod. This is Cain, to a place, land called Nod, away, and, and Cain even admitted this, away from the presence of God. East is this sense of walking away from God. The temple faced east to welcome all who had abandoned God. That is the gospel, church, that Jesus Christ was lifted up to draw all men unto him. So we saw a beautiful picture of God's redemptive work through the, in the temple, but this week I want us, what is it that they actually did at the temple? It was an act of worship. So I want to look at worship then, because church, this is something, the temple was the physical or the earthly reality, and it is picturing our worship throughout all of history into eternity. We are going to be worshiping God through all of eternity. Now, I'm not suggesting that heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, is just simply us worshiping before God, but that is going to be a major part of what we are going to do. And that actually, even though there's so much more, that is actually what Scripture does focus on. So what is worship? Why do we worship God? There are two words that we encounter in the New Testament that are generally translated worship. Now, I don't have my whiteboard here with me, but the first word is latruo. Latruo. Do your best to, if you're taking notes to spell that. It doesn't matter. But latruo basically means worship, but it means more of this idea of serving God. It's a lifestyle of serving God. It's basically what we do every day in serving God, in honoring Him. It is, it is a, it's a practice. It permeates everything that we do. It's our goal, church, so that when we stand before God at the end of the age, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. All right? That is worship, but that's, that's more of this idea of serving God. Wholehearted devotion in serving God, okay? That's true, and, and it is translated worship in places in the New Testament. In, in Romans 12.1, it says, in view of God's mercies... We lay down our lives, we sacrifice ourselves, which is our reasonable worship or service, okay? But the second word is proskuneo. Now, proskuneo is very specific. It's not a broad definition like Latrue. This specifically is what we just did for about a half hour to 45 minutes. We worshiped God. Now, I want to be careful we, th these two are going to be related. I'm going to come back to that at the end of the message. But let's understand they are separate. They're separate in that if we're not careful, we're going to just say that what we just did is kind of like what we do throughout our whole day. I, you know, I, I'm sorry, but that proskuneo, that worship, which actually means, by the way, to bend the knee or to lay prostrate. Now, I'm sorry, if that seems kind of odd that in worship you actually bend your knee or lay prostrate before the Lord, 
I want to introduce you to a, to a, a way of worship that's in both Old Testament and New. I'm going to touch on it for just a little bit in the message tonight. But there is a way God actually asks us to worship him that I personally did not grow up with. But this idea of you know, this idea of worshiping God is found in both Old and New Testament, and that is what I want to focus on this evening. That is our verbal declaration of our devotion and our love for God. And that is so key. Because as I say, growing up, worship was kind of something that I did so my bum didn't get tired, so that I, you know, I could stand up and I wouldn't fall asleep during the message. Okay, So we stood up and we sang a song. Now, I'm sure that was not their intention, but I just couldn't understand the words. Now, can I just say that many, even though we don't necessarily sing from a hymn book, we can still become disengaged in worship. Church, I, I want to tell you something. Worship will absolutely change your life. It will change you, and that's actually its purpose. It is not just some exercise. God does not have us worship him because he needs Mike Curtis to sing him a love song. God is not in that need. There is, worship is so much deeper I want to discover what that is. To do that, let me just first start by seeing what happened in very specific times. We're going to look at just three, very briefly, three times in which the people of God worshipped and something absolutely amazing happened. It says in verse 1, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom. I'm going to stop right there. So these Moabites and these Ammonites and these Munites are gathering together, several hundred thousand no doubt, and they're coming against Jerusalem. That's where Jehoshaphat ruled as king. Jehoshaphat realizes this is a vast army and they are the, 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 their numbers vastly outnumber us. God, what are we going to do? And Jehoshaphat recognizes this is very quick. They weren't prepared for this. Not only that, but they're outnumbered. What are we going to do? When you look over at verse 12, he says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? Obviously, the Moabites were in the wrong. He says, for we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So here's what happens. A prophet speaks to this situation that the battle belongs to the Lord, and Jehoshaphat does something very intriguing that I have not discovered anywhere else in the Old Testament or the New. So I'm not suggesting that this is a battle plan for, for physical warfare. Jehoshaphat gathered the worshipers and put them at the front of the army. He did not do that so that they would be body shields, okay? He did not do that so that they would be the ones to die or maybe whatever reason, okay? He did it. Because he saw that the battle belonged to the Lord, and the very first thing, so they were up front, was going to be this priority of worship. And they sang something so very simple. They didn't sing a huge, elaborate hymn or a long psalm like Psalm 119. Instead, 
Here's what they sang. They sang, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. How many times can you sing that? Well, they apparently sang it over and over and over. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. A declaration of the truth of God and his love. And this is what they sang. The entire, do you re, when they got there to where the, they were ready to battle the enemy, here's what they discovered. God had somehow stirred up that army. And I mentioned three people groups, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites. They rose up with tremendous doubts in their hearts for the other people groups, and they fought each other, and they killed each other. It says this, that God brought confusion into their camp and they turned on one another. They killed each other. By the time the Israelites arrived, there was no need to fight. God had already destroyed them. Amazing. This is what God did with worship. Let me lead you to, to two other ones. Just very briefly here. I'm sorry, I probably took a little bit longer with that one than I intended. But in Acts chapter 4, this will be shorter, I promise. Verse, uh, in Acts chapter 4, we read that the apostles were preaching the gospel and that they were put into, or, or they were brought before the Sanhedrin and had to give a defense. This is when Peter and John had, <coughs> excuse me, Peter and John had been, um, he had healed a man and then they were brought before the Sanhedrin Towards the end of chapter 4, it, it, by the way, I'm sorry, I said the apostles, the, these two, the, Peter and John, were put into prison and then released, and then they, uh, they decided that they were going to go and preach some more. They were, re they were released after they were beaten. They meet with the church, they pray, and after they, they pray with this bold prayer, it says, stretch out your hand, in verse 30, to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What a bold, intense prayer. And in verse 31, it says, as after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And, and if you read what happens later, not only did they speak the word of God boldly, people coming to faith, miracles were happening, but the church bonded together in such love and unity, there were no needs among them. No needs. They, if, they had, if they had properties, they sold their properties and they gave as people needed. No needs among them. The church doing what the church is supposed to do. But my point is this, as they prayed, and I'm going to say that prayer is this communion with God, declaration of his goodness and his love and seeking him and finding themselves completely dependent upon him. That's worship, church. God shook the very place that they were in. Now, can I just say that the last time I worshiped, God didn't shake my bedroom or my study. He didn't do that. He didn't shake my house. I've never experienced this before, but God in this occasion chose to do that. Turn with me to John, excuse me, Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, the, the leaders in Antioch, 
are gathered together. There's five of them. Barnabas and Paul are two of the five. And they are setting that day aside for fasting and prayer. And in this moment, they are worshiping. Okay, you have that picture now. In a room, fasting, praying, worshiping. It says right there, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, here, here we go, set apart from me, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. During worship, a prophetic word came forth that said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to. And, and, and you've heard me preach on prophecy. These types of prophecies are confirmations. They're confirmations. That's how prophets and prophetesses spoke, okay? They brought confirmation to what God was already saying, okay? If there is ever a prophet or a prophetess who prophesies over you, you are to move to thus and such a city. If there's no confirmation in your spirit, if there's no confirmation in the word, if you're a wife and your husband says, I'm not sure I agree with that, if you're speaking with your pastor and he's saying, I'm not sensing that, can I just encourage you don't do that? Did I just rock your world? Don't do that because the prophets throughout scripture, you see in the New Testament, you see why? Because we all have the spirit. I'm, I'm getting a bit sidetracked here. I'm sorry, but I'm just letting us know that this prophecy comes out and it didn't come out of nowhere. I would venture to say that God has been said, been speaking to Barnabas and Saul and now he is saying to the work to which I have already called them. They know what they're talking about. There, there was no further direction. Here's where you need to go because this is something they've been praying about and God says, now is the time. It happened during worship. I want you to look at all three of those examples. God set an ambush ahead of the worshipers. God shook a place as they were seeking him in prayer and worship. God prophetically spoke and Barnabas and Saul started a missionary journey, actually a number of them that Paul went on that completely rocked the first century world with the gospel. All of this as a result of worship. And, and, and if we're not careful, church, we, we look at that and we say, wow, look at the power of worship. And may I just say, can I tweak that a bit? That has, this has nothing to do with the power of worship, but rather the power of the God that responds to worship. Okay? Worship, it's not like magical words or some mysterious thing that's going on that acts with power. No, 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 no. You're turning worship on its head. Worship does not put us at the peak, doing something like worship that has power, rather it places God at the peak, the pinnacle of our lives, seeking him, exalting him, and God responds to that heart of worship, okay? I've actually entitled this message, The Power of Worship, as long as we understand what we're talking about. The power of worship. Can I just suggest, as we talk about worship, most men, not all men, most men feel maybe just a bit uncomfortable with worship, and especially where I'm going to take it right now. Women, they tend to be a little bit 
better with, with dealing with it. Men, they're kind of thinking, well, you know what? And, and, and I'm sorry, guys, I'm speaking generically. This may have nothing to do with you, but most men, you know, let's, let's get through the worship. I want to get to the word. I want to listen to the teaching of the word. Because that tends to be a little bit more cerebral. And it's not that ladies, you're not cerebral. I'm not saying that. But they love worship. It tends to be a little bit more emotional. It, can, it connects them relationally with God. They love that. But the word tends to focus more on the intellectual. Guys, I want to challenge you. I, I love the preaching of the word, okay? <laughs> I, I, I love doing that. But please don't treat worship as preparation for the word. Don't do that. We're not going to spend all of eternity in heaven preaching, but we will worshiping. There is a dynamic to worship that we need to grasp here. And I've, I've got a little bit of time. I've got 25 more minutes. Great. Wonderful. Men, I think we feel uncomfortable with worship because Worship engages every facet of who we are, including the emotions. Worship makes me vulnerable. Makes me vulnerable to God, but if if people are watching, it, it can make me vulnerable to others because I am humbled, and even in my posture, I may demonstrate this, but I am humbled before God. Worship touches on every facet of who I am as someone who is made in the image of God. It engages my mind. It engages my mind with truth. I don't want to sing something that's not truth. We're called to worship God in spirit and in what church? Truth. John 4. Worship Those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter where you're going to worship him, Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, but this new kingdom, we're going to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, in all honesty, Jesus didn't press this too hard, but the Samaritans worshiping at Gerizim were truly missing so much of who God was. I won't get into that too much. Worship in the spirit and in truth. Truth then engages the mind. Guys, I think, I think you get that. Ladies, you can be cerebral too, but you, you tend to be more easily connected with people relationally. For us guys, it's a little bit harder. It takes harder work. And guys, worship is work. Worship is work. It's not just me standing up and singing and sitting down. It is work. It is me engaging my mind, my will. Worship should challenge you, should call you to action. Basically, to believe what you're actually singing. It will challenge me to obedience. It will challenge me to humility. It will challenge me to recognize that even in the darkest hour, God is love. Now we're gonna, I'm going to get to that at the, at the very end. So, but these are things, as we're declaring these truths, they should impact me. They should change me. Worship should change me. Worship is not a preamble to the sermon, guys. And ladies, if you fall into that category. Don't, don't tr- let's hurry and get through the worship so we can get to the word. That is not what worship is about. 
It engages our mind. It engages our will. It engages our emotions. Does this scare us sometimes? Worship should be emotional. It should be emotional. If it doesn't affect your emotions, I'm going to suggest maybe it has not affected your mind or your will yet. Am I stepping on your toes yet? Worship should be emotional. It should call us to the acts of God throughout history. In my life, when I was a lost sinner, Christ redeemed me. He rescued me. That is emotional. It is not just a fact. It is something that thoroughly impacted me. My testimony may bore some people, but it is personal and it is emotional for me. God rescued a lost sinner. Worship is emotion. It should be emotional. I'm not saying that that's why we go into worship because we're looking for an emotional experience, okay? That is not our focus. Motion is not our focus, but it will be emotional. It should be emotional. Lastly, Worship calls me to do something. Do you know that God actually has a way for us to worship him? We worship him in spirit and in truth. When it says in truth, it's not just simply saying truth about who God is and what he has done, the cross, the resurrection. That is true. But to worship him in truth means according to truth. So How does God ask me to worship him? Let me ask you this. For those of you who are married, how does your spouse, what what types of things do you do or say that make your spouse feel loved? I want you to just think about that for a moment. Now, I, I realize Gary Chapman wrote a book, Five Love Languages. I, I get that, and, and, and there's a lot that's, that's true in that, but how, th- those types of things. What does, what do you need to do or say that would make your spouse feel loved? See, I just figured since my love language, and that's just the way I'm going to put it, my love language is serving. So I just, if all I need, I'll just serve my wife, and that will make her feel loved. Well, to a degree it did, but there was so much more that I needed to do. I needed to understand her love languages. And I was just disconnected with that. So I served, but there were times in which she actually would tell me, more in the beginning of our marriage, Mike, there are times in which I just don't feel loved. And I just thought, ah, I've served her so much. Why doesn't she get it? Okay? And but I will tell you this. For our first, let me just give you a little picture here into my life. When we first got married, our first Christmas ever, she gave me a gift, and I'm not sure that I showed it, because I, back then, I would never cry in front of people, right? Because I just grew up, you know, rub some dirt in it, you know, don't show your remote, don't, don't cry, my goodness, that's weakness. But when she gave me this gift, at least inside I cried, because for a whole year, she worked on this gift. It was a quilt. I'm not into quilting. When when she gave it to me and she told me, yeah, I've been working on this for a whole year. And Beezy, her grandmother, and her, her mom to some degree had been helping her with it. I was like, oh my goodness. It, it made me feel so loved. Because she had served and she had 
done this. We still have this blanket, by the way. We don't use it too much because it is a bit frayed on the edges and falling apart. And we use it a lot, right? But it, it's, it's stored away. But that just said love to me so much. But there are certain things that my wife, like just giving gifts. And I just thought, so I have to give you a gift so you feel loved? That just didn't sit right with me. But then I realized, wait a second, what a gift does says, while you were walking through the store with your agenda, and that's me, when I'm shopping, I don't window shop, okay? I don't walk down and say, oh, that just looks so pretty. I should, you know, look at, oh, that's so nice. Maybe I'll buy one for my granddaughter. I don't think that way, okay? My wife does, but I'm just, I have an agenda, okay? I have a list of five things my wife asked me to get and I'm going to time myself how long it takes me to get those five things done and checked out and God forbid the person in front of me in that line is a slow poke okay now I'm, okay I'm, I'm focused all right but for me to pick up something random because I'm thinking my wife would love this that would communicate so much love to her and 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 for so long I just didn't think of this. So my wife has certain love languages. All of us, we feel certain things happen or said to us, they really make us feel loved. If this is new to you, I'm going I'm to encourage you, husbands, wives, find out what your spouse, what, how your spouse feels loved by what you say or do. Can I just say then that if your spouse said, you know what, if you did this, that would make me feel so loved. Would you do it? Most of us would say, yeah, this is like what I've been looking for all my life. Why haven't you told me this sooner, right? That's our response. Well, God has done this for you. God has said, you know what? Here's what I want you to do that would, and I'm going to word it this way. It's very human. I get it, but it would make me feel so loved. Now, obviously, anyway, I'm not going to go there. Does God actually feel loved? God asks us to love him in a certain way. And worship is one of those. Worship is one of those. So when he asks us, Mike, I want you to worship me this way, I want to do that. Do you realize that God asks us to worship him by lifting our hands? Throughout the Old Testament, Scripture talks about lifting our hands in the sanctuary to worship him. I grew up in a very traditional church. God forbid if you should raise your hand because someone will walk up and give you a welcome packet thinking you just received Christ. Both hands, I guess you did it twice that day. I don't know. But the truth is that, that they wouldn't, are you worshiping? What? We, we don't do that here. Absolutely no dancing in our church. It, 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 when I was growing up. But throughout my Old Testament, I see them worshiping God through dance. Not out of order, not sensually, I'm not suggesting this, but they used dance as a form of worshiping God. They used musical instruments. Well, certainly not the guitar. It was only the organ that I grew up with. You did not use the guitar. But I see many instruments listed in the Old Testament in which we were, they were asked, they were asked by God to use to worship him. 
How about this one? Psalm 95. If you were to turn to Psalm 95, you would actually see a list, a number of ways in which God asks that we worship him. Listen to this. Come, let us. Now, when you see that in those English words, let us, that is a translation of the Hebrew imperative. That means it's a command. Okay? That means it's a command. Come, let us sing for joy. It's a command. Sing for joy to the Lord. But that goes on. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. He commands us to shout aloud to him. Shouting, done in order, not chaotically, but done in order, pleases God. I'll word it this way. It's one of his love languages. Basically, that is how God asks us to worship him. It goes on. It talks about thanksgiving. It talks about music and song. Skipping down to verse 6, it says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. These are ways in which God asks that we worship. Now, if you did that in our church, people would think you're probably Catholic or Episcopalian. And that wasn't the denomination, by the way, that I grew up with. You don't kneel. But that's what scripture, that's what we just read, wasn't it? Kneel before the Lord our maker. Bow before him. The Greek word proskuneo actually means to bow down, to lay prostrate before the Lord in worship. Wow. These are physical, bodily demonstrations of worship. But a lot of people in the kingdom of God, and I don't doubt their salvation, that's not what I'm getting at here, but he does ask us to worship this way. They feel uncomfortable with it. They feel this is cultural. Well, that's, those are found in the Psalms, Mike. They have nothing to do with the New Testament. Then why does Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, lift your, I, I ask everyone, all men everywhere, Jew or Gentile, everywhere, cross-cultural, cross-geographically, lifting your hands in holy prayer without wrath or doubting. Why do we have pictures in Revelation, throughout Revelation, of shouting to the Lord, of bowing down, the elders bowing down, casting their crowns before the Lord. That's how they worshiped. Not in my church. God asks us to worship. Why does he ask us to do this? Now, I'm just going to be brief here. This could be a whole sermon right here. And actually, I've preached a whole sermon just on this and the why and so on. God wants our bodies to be engaged in worship, not just sitting down. I'm not saying there's never a, 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 a passage in Scripture that talks about worshiping God sitting down, but generally it is standing. And I would encourage you to read through your Bibles. It's generally standing. I'm not saying you can't sit. I'm not saying that you have to lift your hands every time you worship or shout to the Lord or dance or kneel. Try doing all of those at the same time, right? So obviously we don't always do them, when God tell, by the way, when God tells you to go and make disciples, does that mean you have to do it every single day, every hour of every day? He's saying, I want this to be a part of your lifestyle. I want evangelism to be a part of your lifestyle. Even so, when he talks about worship, he says, this is what I want your worship, this is how I want it to be characterized. We do these types of things, okay? 
He invites us to worship him. So we use our bodies as an expression in worship. There was, and I'm just going to give you one example here. We were having a life group in our home. I was kind of welcoming people. I think someone was up front leading worship. And when you're standing at the back of our family room, you can see the front door here. And I was just, people were coming in late, and, you know, it's my job, I'm going to welcome them. But, you know, halfway through worship or more, I'm just so disengaged with worship. And, and can I just say, for me to preach, I love having been in the presence of God in worship. I just love that, okay? And, and I'm completely distracted, and I'm welcoming people, loving on them, and so on. And, and I wanted to engage in worship before I led the Bible study. And it was probably about 20 after 7. I just figured, you know what? With people coming in, they'll know what to do. They see a whole, every, like, almost everybody's gathered in the back, right? And so I stepped out of view of the front door, and I just stepped in, and I just lifted my hands in this idea of surrender to God and I began to worship and it was it was as if I had just stepped right into the presence of God there's just something when we do something physically that it engages with God it demands a physical response and our mind and our emotions tend to follow there's there's so much more I'm not going to get into it but God asks us to worship him in certain ways for a reason. But let me just say this. What God does not do is ask you to worship him because he needs your worship. Let me just say, God does not need your worship. He doesn't need it. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 here. I'm going to look at our time. Okay. For some reason, it's a little bit hard to see the clock back there, the way the light is glaring on it. Maybe I can get that fixed later. But Exodus chapter 20, this is the giving of the Ten Commandments. And in the giving of the Ten Commandments, you, you know the very first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. The next one is this. It's a few verses long, starting with verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous... God, I want you to underline that. Jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God. Wow. Let me just start by saying this. God is not a jealous God as if there is some need for us to love him, and when we don't love him, that really exposes his need. For me, as a jealous husband, or as a jealous boyfriend, that was the reason I was jealous. There was a need. See, when I first started courting my wife, my wife is a total extrovert. I knew that from the moment I met her. I'm an introvert, so I have to try and get, what is it like to be an extrovert? I didn't know. Nobody in my family was an extrovert. We're all introverts. My wife is an extrovert, and so I, we just had started courting, and she had very close relationships with, like, 
everybody on campus, and there's 13,000 at the University of Delaware. Very close relationship, or almost all of them. And there were a number of guys, and she would just grab lunch with this lady, and this guy, and this lady, and this guy, and, and I remember seeing her after lunch, and she was walking down the street, and she was laughing with one of the guys, and I felt jealous. It's like, I want, I want to be able to laugh with her. Why does he get to do that? And so I sat down, and she could tell I was jealous. I was a little bit angry. I can't believe you did this. Like, poor Mike, right? And, and, and I was insecure. I was growing out. I had grown a lot. I had grown a lot out of my insecurities, but this was another layer, right? But there was just something about jealousy. The, the, the idea that you're losing a love, that jealousy is really biblical. But unfortunately, because Mike Curtis has also fallen, it exposed a need that in losing her, I would not be loved. And so I would lose my place. I, maybe her affections would turn elsewhere. Did, did she really? Where's this relationship going anywhere? Anyway. And so this was beginning to expose some of the, the, the faults in Mike Curtis. See, God has no faults, but it is absolutely right and appropriate for God to be a jealous God. It is not because of his need that he feels jealous, but of your need he feels jealous. He does not want those that he created to stray from his love. See, as a husband, I would feel jealous I probably want to beat the guy up, maybe just take him out to the woodshed too. But I, you know, I would, that's, that's me and there's, I'm fallen. But God is a jealous God and he does not want to lose your love. Not because there's a need. God wants you to worship him and for him to be the sole affection in your life. By sole, I mean the primary focus in your life. That is God's place. That is what this passage is talking about. If money has your attention, it's going to be your God. I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned about money. But if money starts dictating your thoughts and your priorities and what you do, your response, you may even go so far as to say you obey money. Maybe you've not heard it that way before. But does it control what you do? See, Jesus, God himself, he wants to be the one that you obey. Love and obedience go hand in glove. And so when we stray from that affection of God, he feels jealous. He feels displaced, not because it's exposing a need in his life, but because you, my friends, need him. So why do you worship? It is not for God, or it is not because God is in need, but because you are in need. Every creature God has ever created needs to worship God, needs to be able to be yielded to him, look to him as their everything, as their primary focus in their existence, even angels need to worship God. And they're not even fallen, but they're created. I need to worship God. Not because I don't want to fall asleep during the sermon. I worship God because it engages me. Mind, will, emotions, body, it engages the, my full being in expressing my devotion to him. Do you see that? So here's the way I'm going to put it. 
my proskuneo, my worship of God, fully impacts the way I latruo God, serve him. See, when I and my spirit is engaged in seeking after him as my first love, that's worship. When I am seeking after him, it will impact the way I live my life every day. Every day. He is the main focus. I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yes, but why do I do it? Because he's my first love. I'm devoted to him. Jesus says, deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. Why? Because I need to. Jesus needs to be my sole focus and affection. He is my everything. All of my life then falls under that. And if I get that first priority wrong, it will impact the rest of my life. If Jesus is not first in my life, something else or someone else will be. And God is a jealous God. And he says, I need to be first in your life. Not because he's a megalomaniac, not because he's an egotist, but because as created beings, we must be completely devoted and needing him. So he asks us to worship him in a number of different ways. Let me be firm here. It is not up to you how you worship God. Don't create different ways to worship God. He says, here's how I want you to worship me. I'm not going to listen to my wife. Oh, you need me to do this, to, to, and, and that just makes you, you know what? I'm just going to love you the way I think I should. Well, I'm not going to be connected to her because I'm probably going to love her in a way that, you know, it's just, how about for Christmas? I give you a, uh, I give you a uh, circular saw. All right, yes, that would be amazing. She is not going to feel loved by me giving her a circular saw. I don't care if it costs $300. Amen. God asks us, church, worship him. The way he asks, worship him with a sense of devotion because I need to, you need to, not because he needs it. And when that happens... And when you are engaging in this proskuneo type of worship and yielding to him and connecting with him, it will build your faith. It will engage your sense of devotion and get it aligned. In Job chapter 1, and I'm going to conclude with this. i got like 60 seconds. In Job chapter 1, I just always love this. You remember the story of Job and all of the struggle and difficulty that he went through. In Job chapter 1, he had just lost his children, all 10 of them. Church, that would so, so devastate me. I would have so many questions, and that would be fair to have those questions. God's not intimidated by my questions, nor yours. I would wonder, God, I don't get this. I would be tempted to be angry and even bitter at God. How does Job respond? Naked I came, excuse me, he says, then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And if you're going through something so difficult in your life today, now is the time for you to engage in that worship because worship is able to connect with God and not allow all of these difficult struggles in your life swerve your attention away from that pure devotion to Christ. But worship will engage. Struggle, we're dealing with it, we look to him, just like Job did. And in, in the midst of it, we worship him. And we engage mind, will, emotions, body, everything. I worship him because I so desperately need God in my life in those moments, in all my moments, but in those moments in particular. Can I just ask you, what are you going through in your life today? If you were to assess, do you feel that you need worship? Do you feel that you need God? Or is he just someone that you turn to when you're in trouble or when you're depressed or things just aren't going real well in life? God wants your complete devotion today, right now. When things are going great or when things just feel like your life is falling apart. I'm just going to encourage you, worship then. Look to him. Press into him. Don't give up on him. Don't turn away. God's a jealous God. He wants your affections because you need him to have your affections. Can you stand with me? If you want to kneel, if, if you can kneel, I realize some of us, that's hard to kneel. If you want to kneel, if you want to come up to the front here for prayer, you can stand, you can do whatever you want, but let's press into God right now. Let's give him this heart of ours in worship, in prayer right now. Father, as we look to you right now, for some of us, we'll have to admit our heart has been straying. And life has been hard. There have been so many distractions. But right now, I'm surrendering to you. Right now, I'm giving you my heart. Right now, I'm telling you, I am devoted to you. I need you, God. Every moment, I need you. Just right now, my friends, call upon the name of the Lord. Right where you're at, just call upon him. Tell him your need. Tell him your hurt, your discouragement, your failures. Draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. Spirit of God, I just pray that you administer to our hearts. You call us to worship because we need that. We desperately need worship, God. And I just ask, Father, show every single one of us how we can worship you even better. How we can worship you in a way that fully engages us as creatures of God, completely and utterly dependent upon you. Father, win our hearts today, every day, and do it in worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.